are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today for our question and answer time on a Thursday afternoon. If we haven't been introduced before, I'm a pastor, a preacher, a Bible teacher, and uh, there's some people who are familiar with my work. I have a verse-by-verse commentary throughout the entire Bible that some people find useful. Most everybody who uses my commentary uses it from the internet, and uh, I'm very pleased when people are able to use it and find some use from it. So uh, what we do on Thursday afternoons is I normally begin with a lead question It's a lead question that is maybe something that's left over from previous weeks uh, because we don't always get to all the questions that are submitted on a Thursday afternoon. I like to go through and see which questions maybe weren't addressed. Uh, Maybe we couldn't get to them. Maybe the moderator uh, thought that it wasn't a question that would appeal to so many people or whatever. Uh, So I try to get to those questions as well. Maybe sometimes questions come in through email or social media. Today's lead question is, does God love humanity more than his other creations? Or I guess you could say creatures, his created things. And this question comes from June, who submitted it last uh, week. And uh, again, it was a question we didn't get to. And her question was simply this, uh, does God love humanity more than his other creatures? Again, I think that's a tremendous question. And I'll answer it hopefully in a way that's helpful to you here, June, or anybody else who is interested in this question. I'll sort of give you the classic theological answer, yes and no. It's really a question that doesn't um, merit just a direct, absolute yes or no. There's a sense in which, yes, God does love mankind more than any of his creatures. Uh, And there's a sense that the answer is no to that. So let, let me explain. First of all, here's the yes. God loves, excuse me, here's the no. Let me take that back. Here's the no. Uh, God does not love mankind more than any of his other creatures in this sense. God loves all his creation because it is his creation. He made it and he has a purpose for it in his great plan of the ages. So, No, God does have a love for all of his creation. But then here's the no, and I would say, or the yes, I would say, the the, the bigger yes. Yes, God does not love all his creation in the same way. He has a special relationship with humanity because we are made in the image of God in a way that nothing else in creation, at least that we know of, is. This also means that humanity, the human race, has a special role in God's plan of the ages. So again, I would say that there is a sense in which every created thing has a role in God's great plan of the ages. I mean, God doesn't waste anything. Yet we can also say that humanity has a special role, again, rooted in that concept that we are made in God's image. And I thought that today we would just spend at least a little bit of time examining that thought of what it means that we are made in the image of God. 
this idea is first introduced in Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. This is what we read right here. We read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, we see very plainly here that the idea is is that God created humanity uniquely in his image, and he didn't just create the first man, Adam, in his image. Eve was also created. We find that in those words from verse 27, where it says male and female, he created them. But we also get from this verse that it's not just restricted to Adam and Eve. All of humanity is made in the image of God. By the way, this thought is also repeated, man being made in the image of God, in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and in a related sense, not entirely the same, but a related sense, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, among other passages. It's a very important point. God said, let us make man in our image. Now, I'm not even going to go into the Trinitarian aspects of that, God referring to himself in the plural form. But understand, we are made, humanity is made in the image of God. Man is different from every other order of created being because he has a compatibility, a consistency in his created being with God. This indicates that there is a significant gap, and I would say that in some sense it's an unbridgeable gap, between human life and animal life. Now, I understand we are biologically similar to certain animals, but we are distinct from the animals in our moral, our intellectual, and our spiritual capabilities. It also means that there is an unbridgeable gap between human life and angelic life, or maybe more properly, I would say, human being and angelic being. Again, there's a significant difference there between the two. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that angels are made in the image of God. And I believe, I know this is going a little bit on an argument from silence, but again, I don't find anything in the scriptures inconsistent with this. I believe that angels cannot have the same kind of relationship of love and fellowship with God that human beings can. I think that there is a compatibility between the human and the divine that there is not between the angelic and the divine. And I can't say I understand all of that, but I would just say that it is indicated in the scriptures that human beings are uniquely made in the image of God. By the way, this fact that humans are made in the image of God also means that the incarnation was truly possible. In other words, God, in the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, could really become man 
Because even though deity and humanity are not the same, they're compatible. One is made in the image of the other. And this also means the fact that man is made in the image of God, it means that human life has inherent or intrinsic value. This is set apart from whatever quality of life somebody may experience. Human life has value built into it because it is made in the image of God. I believe that there's several specific things in mankind that show him to be in the image of God. And this is sort of create uh, in comparison to animals in the natural order. Um, Mankind alone is unique. There's no other animal, at least to my knowledge, I'm, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a botanist, but to my knowledge, there is no other animal that shows such a variety of facial expressions as mankind. As far as I know, mankind alone has such a developed sense of shame that expresses itself in a blush. Alone, mankind can speak, and mankind alone, among all creation, possesses personality, morality, and spirituality. These things belong to human beings alone, not to the created order. Now, I'm leaving angelic beings out of that calculation, but I think you understand what I mean. Uh, Among earthly creation. And I think that there are at least three aspects to the idea that we are made in the image of God. Now, there may be much more than this. I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. But here are three aspects um, that I think are important and suggested in this idea of being made in God's image. First of all, it means that humans possess personality. That is, they possess knowledge, feelings, and a will. This sets man apart from all animals and from all plants. Secondly, it means that human beings possess morality. We are able to make moral judgments, and we have a conscience in a way that, uh, again, other animals do not. And it means that human beings possess spirituality. Man is made for communion with God, and it is on the level of spirit that we communicate with God. Now, a few other things I want to say about this idea of mankind being made in the image of God— This does not mean that God has a physical or a human body. God is spirit, according to John chapter 4, verse 24. And and though God does not have a physical body, at least God in his celestial, if we want to say existence, he did design man so that man's physical body could do many of the things that God does. That is, uh, can see, can hear, can smell, can touch, can speak, can think, and plan. These are all things that God does, and our human body enables us to do the same kind of thing. So, June, to answer your question, yes and no. There is certainly a sense in which God loves all of his creation, and he has a plan for all of his creation. However, God has a special love, a special plan, and we could even say he wants special relationship with humanity. 
because mankind is uniquely made in the image of God. So that's the, our lead question for today. Let me click on over and take a look at some of the questions that have come in uh, through the live chat. Um, let me begin with a question that comes in uh, from our dear friends at TWR360. That's Trans World Radio 360, which is a wonderful and amazing ministry that for decades has been reaching the world through shortwave radio transmissions, they reach places in the world that are inaccessible by any other technology or really by uh, much human contact, uh, at least in person. And TWR360 is their uh, online presence, and we're very pleased with our partnership with this wonderful ministry. From our TWR360 audience, Charlene asks this. In your commentary on Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, you say that in Jesus's time, the temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant. The temple also lacked the Shekinah, the Urim and the Thummim and the sacred fire from heaven. I know that the Ark was removed by the Babylonian uh, Nebuchadnezzar II between 604 and uh, 597 BC. But can you explain the other things that you mentioned in the, that the temple lacked in Jesus's time? The absence of the Shekinah, the Urim, the Thurm, and the sacred fire from heaven. Thank you. Charlene, we develop all of these things somewhat from what I would call an argument from silence. Now, we are specifically told in rabbinic writings that the Ark of the Covenant was not in what we call the Second Temple. The Second Temple is the temple that was originally rebuilt when Zerubbabel, and then later Ezra, and then after them, Nehemiah, came from the Babylonian exile after the Persian Empire had conquered over the Babylonian Empire. The ruler of the Persian Empire allowed Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem, and they even supported some of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. When they rebuilt that second temple, originally in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then later Nehemiah, that temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant. And there is specific rabbinic mention of that in the days of the second temple. And there is also no mention made that they had the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, these were somewhat mysterious objects that were used to discern the will of God. Many people think that they were stones of some type. Uh, perhaps a white stone and a black stone, one indicating a yes answer, one indicating a no answer. And uh, the high priest would put them within sort of the pocket of what's called his ephod and ask God a question that would require a yes or a no answer and then pull out either a white rock or a black rock for either a yes or no answer. Now, that's somewhat speculative. We, we actually don't know biblically what the Urim and Thummim were, but they were some kind of device used to discern the will of God. We have no mention of those in the second temple period. The Shekinah, which would be the cloud of glory that was definitely part of the first temple. We know this because it descended upon the first temple at the dedication of the temple. And it visibly departed from the temple before the Babylonians conquered it. We know this from the prophecies of Ezekiel, that the Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple which was in some way a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Um, 
And then finally, uh, you mentioned too, the, uh, the other aspect was the sacred fire from heaven. That was the fire from heaven, which ignited the altar of God. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, the fire on the altar was ignited by fire from heaven, and they kept that fire burning all through the time of the destruction of the first temple under the Babylonians. Well, there was no divine fire from heaven that lit the fire for the altar for the second temple. And we know this because in some cases, the rabbis specifically mentioned that these things were not present. In other cases, it's an argument from silence. If those things were present, the rabbis would have told us. So uh, these are simply features and items that were present with the first temple. Again, the Ark of the Covenant, the Urim and the Thummim, the uh, other aspects. Now, let me get a little more uh, detailed in this. I'm looking up at my bookshelf and I see an excellent book by Alfred Edersheim titled The Temple uh, and its Services in the Days of um, Jesus the Messiah. I'm sure that if I were to look up in that book, there'd be a lot more detailed information on that. But let me just explain it like this, is that there were other aspects of the temple that were probably rebuilt for the second temple. So they rebuilt an altar of incense. They rebuilt the table of showbread. They rebuilt the lampstand, what is sometimes called the menorah. They rebuilt the burnt offering, uh, the altar of burnt offering that stood outside the temple proper building. But this is what I want you to understand, uh, Charlene. They felt that it would be transgressing God's holiness to rebuild the Ark of the Covenant. There was one Ark of the Covenant. And when that was lost, they did not feel impelled or or they did not feel prompted to rebuild it. So again, great question, Charlene. We know this from rabbinic mentions, either specifically that these items were not there, or in some cases, we know it from silence. These items were missing from the second temple, built originally in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then later Nehemiah, and they were... um, not present through the entire second temple period. That second temple stood until the year 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. Great question. Here's a question that comes from Jonathan. Jonathan, looking at you right now. Uh, What is the kingdom of God and is that different from the kingdom of heaven? Jonathan, that's a great question. And to be honest, it's a question like many questions having to do with biblical interpretation that Christians throughout time and of different traditions have had different answers towards, but you're asking me the question, so I'm going to give you my answer of what my understanding of the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is any place where the reign of Jesus Christ as king is recognized and the benefits of his reign are present because those benefits uh, that his presence as king is recognized. There is a very real sense in which the kingdom of God is on earth now in and through God's church, but there is an ultimate sense, a greater sense, a perfected sense in which the kingdom of God will be on earth 
during that period of time of Jesus's demonstrable, perfect reign over the earth, a period that we commonly call the millennium. Again, I'm dealing with things that have some measure of debate and controversy among them, among the Christian circle. I'm just giving you my perspective here. So there is a real sense in which the kingdom of God is among us now, but it is not an ultimate sense. Uh, I forget which theologian coined this phrase. I think it was someone fairly recent, the last 100 or 200 years. They said in this sense that the kingdom of God is already, yet it is also not yet. It's definitely here, but it's not here in its fullest and most perfect sense. For that, we still wait. Now, that's what the kingdom of God is. Your question is, is there a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? That's sort of the second aspect of it. Well, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, I regard as being the same thing. It was a very common thing for devoted Jewish people of biblical times to substitute words for God. So they would not say, I swear by God. They would say, I swear by heaven. Uh, they would often look for words to substitute for God because they did not want to run the risk of profaning the name of God. And the idea was, if you avoid mentioning God altogether, then you're never going to profane his name. That's kind of the idea behind it. So they would substitute words for God. And one of the words they would substitute is heaven knowing that Jewish custom of biblical and sometimes modern times, there's Jewish traditions today that practice much the same thing. But knowing that to be a custom in biblical times, it makes it very easy for me to look and to see, no, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are just different ways of describing the same thing. Now, again, let me say, this is something that not all Christians have agreed on. I think that's a majority opinion, what I've just expressed to you. But there have been some people that have tried to make the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I just have not been persuaded by any evidence biblically that there is a difference. So the kingdom of God is any place where the reign of Jesus Christ of King is recognized and the benefits of that reign are in some measure enjoyed. Our homes should be outposts of the kingdom of God. Certainly every church should be an outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of God. It should be kingdom territory. This is where Jesus reigns, and in some regard, we enjoy the benefits of his reign. That's all kingdom of God stuff. And then ultimately, it will happen all over the world in a powerful and unique way. Jonathan, thanks very much for that question. Next question comes from Lupi. Lupi says, can a person who claims to be a believer yet does not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person that is God be saved? Okay, Lupe, you ask me, can a person who claims to be a believer? Lupe, I would say, yes, it can happen. Now, I wouldn't be enthusiastic about it. I wouldn't say, yeah, no problem there. No, because this person has a significant misunderstanding, biblically speaking, about who God is, about who God truly is as revealed in his word. And that's a serious thing. 
However, it's important for us to understand, Lupi, that we are not saved by the degree of our theological accuracy. Now, look, I say this as a Bible teacher and preacher. I'm a man, and I don't think I'm unique in this regard. I thank the Lord that there are many people like me, but I am a man who has given my life to understanding and explaining the Bible. And uh, I believe it's important for us to know what the Bible teaches, to know biblical truth about who God is, about what God came to do, about the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think that this is vitally important. But at the same time, we are not saved by our degree of theological accuracy. We are saved by our real trust in love in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do for us. Now, a person may be confused or may be wrong about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, yet still have a real relationship with the real Jesus. It's just something that can and should be corrected in their life. So I hope my listeners, my viewers understand here. I'm not trying to say for a moment that it's not important, these things, and that they should not be corrected and dealt with, and that this could not um, lead to serious problems down the road. But just in the way that you ask that question to me there, Lupe, I would say, yes, it is possible for a person who is wrong, perhaps significantly wrong about their understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, to nevertheless be saved because they put a true trust and love in the true person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say one more thing about this. If a person is confused or wrong, that can be different than a deliberate rejection of who the Bible says God is. That is far more dangerous ground. And again, I I, I can't say how far of it is dangerous, how far of it would mean someone isn't right with God um, uh, unto salvation. I would just say that it is a far more dangerous thing for someone to know what the Bible teaches about these things and to reject it and go their own way. So again, Lupe, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I hope that's helpful for you. Adonis asks this question. What is the evidence for humanity spending a total of 7,000 years on earth, 6,000 years before the kingdom of Christ plus the millennium kingdom? Are you persuaded by this case? Adonis, I would just say simply and directly, no, I am not persuaded by that case. Now, I agree that it's a possibility, perhaps, but since the Bible does not directly present it, I don't think that we should um, put much weight on it. It's an interesting idea. Maybe theoretically it's true. But again, I like to stick with the ground that says we won't emphasize it. We won't um, regard it as true unless the Bible itself emphasizes it and regards it as true. I'm just pretty persuaded on that particular point. Now, of course, people get this from the idea of the Sabbath. 
Uh, they look at biblical history and say, well, maybe you could say it's about 6,000 years. And God did say work six days and then have a Sabbath day of rest. Maybe that 7,000th year period uh, is the Sabbath rest. But again, that's just making a case by biblical analogy. There's nowhere in the scriptures that says it's the case. So is it kind of interesting to think about? Yeah. Does it have an argument for it by analogy? Yes, it sure does. But does the Bible clearly state that that is how it goes? No, the Bible doesn't state that at all. So Adonis, I just don't put much weight in an argument like that. Thank you for your question. Going on next to Jenny asks, can people be saved during the millennial kingdom? If so, when will they be resurrected? Uh, Jenny, I believe, again, this is according to my understanding of the millennium. By the way, if you look around on uh, our YouTube channel, the Enduring Word YouTube channel, you can find a series titled uh, God's Plan of the Ages. And I know that on that playlist, in that series, I have a entire teaching on the millennium. And I think I deal with this question in greater detail on that, but I'm happy to answer it here. My understanding of the millennium, and again, I, I know maybe I'm, I'm bending over backwards to use an expression of speech to make this clear, but I, I just want to say that when we come to these ideas about uh, end times, eschatology, the last things, Christians who really love the Lord and Christians who really respect the Bible come to different understandings of these things. I just want to recognize that. So I'm quite comfortable, biblically speaking, with my understanding of these events. But I don't pretend for a moment, nor do I want to give the impression that this is like universally believed that there are Christians who disagree with my understanding of what we call the millennium. That being said, let me say that I believe that those who will populate the earth during the millennial period are those who remain on the earth after the glorious return of Jesus Christ, after the great tribulation, after uh, what we would call Armageddon, the great last battle. There will be many people, perhaps billions on the earth that remain, even though there will be likewise billions dead, So you begin with that pool of people who survive the Great Tribulation, who survive the Battle of Armageddon, who survive the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Take that pool of people. Then, I believe, Matthew chapter 25 tells us that there will be a dividing of the sheep and the goats. God will take the morally bad among that group and send them to eternity. The people who are regarded as the sheep in Matthew chapter 25, those are the ones allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. They aren't necessarily saved. They aren't necessarily every individual who's put their faith, their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, especially what he did for them at the cross and the empty tomb to pay for their sins and to make them right with God. Not necessarily those people. But they would have the opportunity under the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ over this earth 
administered through his people who are already resurrected and who knows what else, maybe angelic beings as well, they would have the opportunity to become Christians. So yes, I believe that people can and will be saved during the millennium. Now, as far as when those people will be resurrected, well, they could be resurrected when they die because there will be people who die during the millennium. They will just have their life um, spans greatly extended, massively extended. Uh, So much so that they will say that if somebody died when they were 100 years old, that they were just a child. But people will still die during the millennium. So what you have during the millennium kingdom, you have people who aren't necessarily believers, good moral people, people who survived the Great Tribulation, the... A battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Christ, people who were judged fit to enter the millennium by the judgment of the sheep and the goats. You have those people who remain, but not necessarily born again. They would have that opportunity. The resurrection would happen either when those people die or at the very end of the millennium, which according to the book of Revelation has a specific marking point with the release of Satan from the bottomless pit. And then on top of that, the final judgment of God upon humanity and upon the earth. So uh, that's how I would express it to you there, Um, Jenny. I hope that's helpful for you. Julia says, I'm housebound and not able to attend church, so I divide my tithes between different local charities like the homeless and food pantries. Is this acceptable? I followed it from Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. Julia, let me say, first of all, God bless you for your charitable, giving heart. It's a wonderful thing that you are caring for the least of these in our midst. And it's a good thing for you to do to support charities like the homeless and food pantries. Julia, I I would just give one gentle word of God. First of all, let me just say, I think what you should do with your tithes and offerings is pray and seek God and just allow him to direct you how you should lead such things. I I would just give one brief comment, though. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about giving in 1 Corinthians, and I believe this is also the case in 1 Timothy. I'd have to look up the other references, but certainly it's in 1 and 2 Corinthians. He indicates that it is proper in our giving, for us to support those who feed us and minister unto us, spiritually speaking. Uh, Paul just indicated that um, if he had ministered unto other people with spiritual things, it was right and appropriate that they return by ministering unto him with material things. And most of the time, I would say that this translates into supporting our local church, Julia, you described how your situation's different. You're not in that situation of of being able to attend and be a part of a local church because you're housebound. Uh, But you may want to consider, again, I would only ask you to consider this because I really believe that you're doing a good thing with your giving, but you might consider taking some portion of your charitable giving, your, your tithe as you describe it there, and sending it towards ministries that feed you and bless you, um, just because that pattern is given in the New Testament. But I do want to say again, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. 
you should just prayerfully consider this additional aspect in that regard. Again, God bless you, Julia. God loves the generosity of his people, especially when it's demonstrated towards the least of these. Let me continue on to, um, well, I just give, I got a little note from Devin, our moderator, telling us all the people are here from Maui, Chicago, Las Vegas, Siegen, Germany. God bless you in Siegen. Texas, Hamburg, Texas, uh, Texas twice, I guess. St. Augustine, Florida, uh, on Maui, West Side Maui. Wonderful. So pleased you all could join us. Um, it is a tremendous blessing to have a, um, an international uh, time together when we can come together and talk about these things regarding the Bible and the Christian life. So let me continue on to the next question. Somebody asks, is my bobblehead Billy Graham today? No, it's not. And if you'll give me just a moment here, I can get it and show this bobblehead to you. This bobblehead is not Billy Graham. Uh, this bobblehead is a former uh, broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers, a man named Vin Scully. Vin Scully was an amazing broadcaster, and he had quite a remarkable career uh, for many years. Uh, and so I grew up listening to Vin Scully describe baseball games. And I would suggest that since he started his career before I was ever born, and um, he continued until just a few years ago, uh, for most of my life, uh, I've listened to that voice talk about baseball games. And look, um, it's just a pleasant diversion for me. And uh, I like that Vin Scully bobblehead. So um, God bless you, Vin Scully, even though I think it's uh, highly, highly unlikely that you would ever hear this. But I did do an article once on how I thought that Vin Scully, the broadcaster uh, who described baseball games, how he had a lot to teach preachers and teachers. And maybe sometime I'll go over that on the YouTube channel here. I, I do think he has something to teach those of us who preach and teach God's word. If I can look back here, maybe I can find my Billy Grant. Here's my Billy Graham bobblehead. I'll put that up another time. And by the way, uh, if you have a uh, bobblehead that you want to send me, well, just go right ahead. Uh, if it's good, if it's not profane, if it's somebody that uh, would be of interest to me and maybe our audience, then uh, I might put it up. I, I'm not making any promises, but I'm just saying perhaps I'll put it up. Uh, there aren't so many bobbleheads of Christian figures out there. Uh, there's a few, but not so many. All right, let me continue on to the next question from Tanya. Tanya, wonderful to hear from you. God bless you, dear sister. Um, it says this, if being Jewish is inherited by your mother only, what about Ruth, King David, and finally, Jesus? Okay, well, Tanya, that's an excellent question. Let me deal with it on two aspects. Number one, we talk about being Jewish as something that is inherited maternally not paternally, but maternally through the mother. And that is certainly how it is, according to the rabbis, according to Jewish teaching and tradition. But again, to the best of my knowledge, you won't find that in the Bible at all. I'm extremely hesitant to say that God regards uh, Jewish lineage as being passed down through the mother. Maybe God regards it as by either the mother or the father, or both, or just one way. I mean, 
I understand that rabbis today and Jewish tradition for many centuries has regarded it as only being passed down through the mother. But we don't have anything in the Bible that tells us that. So I would be very open to the idea that that's not how God sees it. The second thing I would say is that, yes, there is an important genetic aspect to the Jewish ethnicity. God has a plan and a purpose in his plan of the ages for the Jewish uh, race, if you want to call it that. However, at least in God's perspective, one can join the Jewish race. It's not purely a matter of genetics, but one can join the Jewish race by being a proselyte, by joining the Jewish people. And I think that's what happened with the example of Ruth, what happened with Rahab, uh, what happened with some of these other notable Gentile women that are in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, Again, we're not only talking about Ruth, she's a notable example, but you're talking about Rahab before her. So I would just go back to stating like this, that there's nothing in the Bible that says that um, Jewish heritage, Jewish genetic membership, so to speak, is passed down only through the mother. That's something uh, that uh, is by Jewish tradition and a teaching of the rabbis. So Tanya, thank you. Thank you for that question. Nice to hear from you. Let me go on to the next question. From Texas, it says, Will modern-day Jews have anything different offered to them salvation-wise since they are a chosen people, Or is it now the same thing for them if they do not accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Texas, again, what a wonderful question. I'm always impressed by the high level of questions from among our audience. But Texas, let me just point it out to you this way. That God does not have multiple paths of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's it. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a separate way of salvation for the Jewish people. There may be some slight nuance as to what it means for a Jewish person to trust in Jesus as Messiah to trust in what he did at the cross and at the empty tomb to be what accomplished their salvation, what made them right with God. But but it would only be in a slight nuance. In the main, in the main, we understand this and we understand it very powerfully, that God's plan is that humanity would be saved, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, including the Jewish people. So we, we want to stay away from the idea that God has a separate plan of salvation for the Jewish people. And as for what basis they will be judged, well, they'll be judged on the basis of what they did with Jesus Christ. Did, did they know who Jesus was and what he came to do for them? And did they consciously reject it? Then they'll be judged on that basis. Did they never hear of Jesus? and of what Jesus came to do for them, well, then they'll be judged on that basis. 
But God will judge the earth fairly. But there's only one way that we can come to be made right with God, and that is to receive the salvation that he offers to us in Jesus Christ. And that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in me, in my own works, in my own goodness that can do it. There's nothing in any other spiritual strategy or plan. It happens in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to deal with this question now. I've dealt with it in the recent past on a Thursday afternoon. A related question is, what about those who have never heard? Well, that's another question, but we're, we're not dealing with that question right now. Okay, Carol asked the question, can a person who denies God in this life have an opportunity to repent in the afterlife? Carol, uh, we have absolutely no indication of that biblically, just none. The Bible says that it's given unto mankind once to die and then to face the judgment. It says that in the book of Hebrews. There is no real plan B. There is no after this life plan. Um, I know that there's some people who preach some kind of doctrine of eternal reconciliation, some forms of universalism. uh, But again, those I would believe very strongly are just not simply taught by the Bible. Um, There is no biblical indication of a opportunity to repent and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ after our life on this earth. And I would just say this, if it were true that there is such an opportunity, God did not want us to know anything like it, anything about it. And that's why I think it's appropriate for us to operate on the basis of simply saying, no, there is no uh, second chance, so to speak, after this life. Uh, EJF asks, I often hear about essential Christian doctrine. Could you please tell me what the essential, what are the essential Christian doctrines? Oh, wow. EJF, that's not an easy question to answer. Because there are no unimportant truths. But there are some that are more important than others. So I would say the most important truths are the truths that really center around the person and work of Jesus Christ. I believe that's an essential uh, Christian doctrine, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if somebody rejects what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he came to do for us, then there's really no hope for them. That's essential Christian doctrine. Now, there are many doctrines that are tied to that basic concept of the person and work of Jesus Christ in some way, Um, but they are not directly that doctrine. So um, I would say that start with that as the core and then build out through there. Another very handy way to think about what the essential Christian doctrines are is to go back to what is termed oftentimes as the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a very old, a very ancient statement of Christian belief. And uh, I would say that that is a fair summary, not exhaustive. We don't want to pretend that the uh, Apostles' Creed tells us everything. 
it it has a um, very brief explanation of um, atonement. And I mean, it refers to it, but a very brief explanation of atonement. Uh, but again, it it's it, it's a good statement of basic Christian belief. So I, I, I would look to those two things. The person and work of Jesus Christ, those doctrines that are directly relevant to that, and the things that are contained uh, in the Apostles' Creed. I think those give us a um, good starting point. Now, sometimes people regard doctrines as essential because they feel that to deny a particular doctrine would undermine those other things, such as the doctrine of the uh, inspiration of the Word of God, the divine inspiration, that the Bible is God's inspired Word. Now, you don't have to believe that the Bible is God's inspired, inerrant Word to go to heaven, but you can reasonably say you don't have much reason to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ if you don't believe that the Bible is the inspired and even inerrant word of God. So you, you can see how some people make the connections to those essential doctrines. But, but again, I would just repeat what I said to you before. To keep it centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, number one. And then number two, uh, maybe look at the things that are contained in the Apostles' Creed. Okay, next up, another question from Jenny, who asks, our spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord, but we are not yet glorified. So is our sin nature still with us in heaven? Jesus never sinned. Would he not have received the sin nature from Mary? Well, Jenny, um, you ask a few questions in that. And let me just address these quickly. Um, no, we will not have a sin nature in heaven. The Bible is very clear that anything sinful, Anything um, displeasing God is, is put outside of heaven, the new Jerusalem. So no, we do not bring, we are perfected. We are resurrected. We, we do not carry a sin nature with us there into heaven. Um, but the next question is, uh, Jesus never sinned. Would he not have received the sin nature from Mary? No, um, Jesus did not have a sin nature. And apparently... Because Jesus was miraculously conceived in the womb of Mary, we believe in what is called the virgin birth, which might more properly be called the virgin conception of Jesus. Because we believe in this, um, some people think that in some way, maybe it's biological, maybe it's spiritual, but maybe in some way that it is the man's contribution to the conception of a child that passes on original sin. That's nothing to make a doctrine about because the Bible doesn't specifically say, but people have offered that conjecture. And again, maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's some way that we can't understand a physical thing. But Jesus was conceived of Mary, but conceived by a miracle when she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, not with any kind of sexual relations at all, but by a miracle of God within the womb of Mary. So Jesus did not have a sin nature. His conception by Mary in no way made that a necessity because, again, it was a virgin conception, 
what we sometimes refer to as the virgin birth. Our final question today goes comes from Ajax. Ajax says, I'm a Christian from the Democratic Republic of Congo. God bless you. Glad you're here. If Jesus was born to die, then why should the Jews be judged for rejecting Jesus when his death was planned by God himself? Well, I think that's a great question, and I thank you for asking it, and blessings to you in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But God's plan certainly said that Jesus would be betrayed and rejected by his own and would be sent to his death by both the religious leaders and the secular leaders. Remember, it was not only the Jewish leaders, but it was also the Roman leaders, especially in the person of Pontius Pilate that sent Jesus to his death. But it does not eliminate the guilt that those individuals had because they wanted to do it. In no way did God make the religious leaders uh, reject Jesus and send him to Pilate. In no way did God make Pontius Pilate uh, reject Jesus and send him to the cross. Matter of fact, you could say that God went to extraordinary length to warn Pilate and to persuade Pilate not to do it. Pilate sent Jesus to the cross because he wanted to. Now, he might have been conflicted in his feelings, but ultimately he wanted to. He decided to do it. He could have chosen differently. Now, of course, all of this went along with God's preordained plan. But God did not violate the choice or the will or the desire of any of these actors in this. And it's the same way today. Look, if God uses the sinful conduct of a human being, God doesn't have to make that person sin. He just has to allow them to do the sin that they already want to do. And that's why uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' day and the political leaders in Jesus' day bear the responsibility for sending Jesus to the cross, even though it was completely within the plan of God and God brought something good and glorious out of that all. Again, thank you for that question that comes from Ajax Academy there in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Folks, that's going to be it for today. So pleased that you could join me. Hope that you can join me again. Uh, It's wonderful when we can have these times together. Uh, Next week, we'll be back at it again, 12 noon Pacific time. Please remember to join us both either through the TWR 360 website or our YouTube channel directly. Very happy we can do this. And um, thanks for your continuing prayers for the work of Enduring Word. God is very good to us. God is wonderfully blessing the work we have, especially the work getting this Bible commentary translated into many different languages. It's a big work. It's an enormous work. And uh, we just seem to make wonderful little progress day by day. So God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm glad you could be with us today. Please join us again on a future occasion. And don't be afraid to tell other people about this um, question and answer time. Maybe they can join us either live or as most people watch it later on in its video presentation on YouTube.
God bless you, and thank you for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.